Welcome back to the AEC Hive, where we're talking about innovation in architecture, engineering, and construction. I'm Ralph Montague, director at ArcDocs and co-founder of the AEC Hive. Hi, everyone. This is John Egan, CEO of BIM Launcher and co-founder at AEC Hive. Looking forward to today's discussion. We're very excited today to be talking to Daniel Davis. Daniel is a, a senior researcher at Hassel, an international design studio, offices in Australia, UK, US, Asia. Daniel, you're very welcome. We look forward to talking to you about research and innovation in the AEC sector. Maybe just to get started, you could give us a bit of your background and where you've come from and, and a little bit about the, the current work you're doing, and then we could t- take it from there. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah, and thanks. Thank you both for having me. So yeah, I studied architecture back in New Zealand, which is where my accent comes from. And then I moved over to Australia for a while and did a PhD over there in computational design and worked for a while on Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. And then after that, I moved over to the States and I worked with, or I joined a consultancy called Case at the time, who was a very fun kind of design technology consultancy. And then Case was acquired by WeWork and I became the director of research at WeWork and then spent about four years there. The wheels kind of fell off that company and I left and uh, now I'm in this role at um, Hassel where I'm studying mostly the workplace and how that affects the people that work in those spaces or used to work in those spaces. I suppose you could say you're an unusual person because you, you're very focused on research and like one of the reasons we set up the AC Hive is we, we feel that research, or formal research anyway, and R&D in the AC sector is, is pretty low, so it's not a common thing. Now, you could say, well, every construction project, every design project is innovative and uh, creative, um, and so research is happening, but like I worked in a big practice, I'm sure you've had the same experience, like you're doing amazing things on projects, but that that work never gets published or never gets, it doesn't even get distributed within your own practice. Would that be your, your kind of feeling about R&D and research in the AEC sector? Yeah, I think it's a pretty fair assessment. Um, there's been a lot of surveys done showing that the AEC sector kind of chronically underinvests in research compared to other industries like the tech industries and kind of car manufacturers and stuff like that. And definitely my experience working at a company like WeWork, which had a really different sort of financial model to a typical architecture or construction firm. They had a lot more scope and ability to do things like research. And it's been interesting coming back into an architecture practice now, trying to work out like what the business case is for doing research and why it is that we should be investing in research. And so I've been really fortunate that Hassel's you know, we've got a small team of full-time researchers that the company invests in, and we've been able to do some some good stuff on on the back of that. And that, that's an interesting idea because, I mean, I think a lot of architectural practices anyway wouldn't have a formal research team. You know, I mean, it might just be a few people scattered around the practice engaging. So can you give us some, sort of an idea, like what sort of percentage is the, the research team compared to, you know, the rest of the practices? Yeah, so the research team itself is three people at the moment, so it's a pretty small part of like a 800-person practice. But Hass also has a strategy team, which might be a dozen people, who do research just for clients. And we also have research partnerships with two groups, this group called Place Intelligence, who do a lot of sort of movement analysis of people based on like cell phone data and stuff like that. 
and another group called Brookfields who do a lot more kind of consumer-focused research and look at trends in, in different sort of commercial commercial settings. And, I mean, with your background in case and also WeWork, I suppose the WeWork were pretty much focused on the utilization of space and working in the working environment and their business model was famous for was really maximizing and optimizing the use of space. When you were doing that sort of work, I know it's a few years ago, but were you already thinking about how the the workplace was changing and you know, just given the current situation and the sort of looming idea that people might not all go back to work in an office? Is that something that you've been looking at or thinking about? Yeah, we've been thinking about it a lot. Um, and, yeah, it's definitely something that was sort of, I think, underneath a lot of what was happening at WeWork, right? So at WeWork, people rented office space, and they still can, rent office space by the month. And that's, when you think about how an office is typically leased, it's typically leased for five years, 10 years, 15 years at a time. And so it's quite a radical transformation in just how space is accessed and utilized. And I think through that, you saw, I think it's a general sort of trend that there's a lot, even back then, there was a lot of uncertainty in how these companies were going to perform how quickly they were going to grow, how quickly they'd expand, what their need for space was going to be in five or ten years. And so WeWork was one way of kind of dealing with that uncertainty. And I think with the pandemic, in some ways you're just seeing an acceleration of that trend where there's even more uncertainty about what the future of work is going to look like. And companies are starting to like think about how it is that they go back to the office or whether they should go back to the office and how much flexibility they need to offer staff and and themselves as they go back. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, John and I have been talking a lot about, I'm sure you've heard of the 80-20 rule or the Pareto principle, and you know, which is it's a fascinating thing, and it's only something I've learned about more recently, and it's, I've always wondered why people don't learn about it, because it's a, you could call it a natural law of the distribution of creative or product, productive efforts that's been around forever. <laughs> well, it's a natural law because it doesn't change. I mean, it's named after 16... Was a 16th or 17th century economist that 80% of the productive effort comes from 20% effectively of the of the workforce, mm. you know, and um, and was even reinforced I think in the 1960s or 70s by the Price's Law, which is the square root of the number of people that work for you produce 50% of the productive effort. So bringing that back to the workplace and how workplaces are utilized is that is that the kind of statistics around people are working and using their their workplace and is that how things are calculated or is there is there some sort of science behind it uh there's a lot of science (laughs) behind it um i'd say one of the challenging things is measuring productivity particularly in uh, like white collar knowledge workers is actually really difficult so if someone's working in a call center or something you can monitor how many times they've taken a phone call but quantifying the value of something like I know, me going on a podcast today. It's very hard to say whether this is a productive use of my time or whether it's a non-productive use of my time. And mm-hmm. so getting those measures of productivity are quite challenging, but there's a number of ways that scientists today sort of go about it, whether it's looking at things like how engaged someone is with an organization is often a good predictor of how committed they are to doing their work and how much they want to do their work. So Things like motivation and what's bringing people together and what's um, driving them is often like one of the key things that we look at. 
it seems to me that productivity is the big issue in the AEC sector. You know, like it's been talked about for many years that there's just been almost zero increase in productivity and you know, consequently building is too slow and it's too expensive and it takes too much environmental and material resource compared to other things like productivity in manufacturing has you know, more than doubled. So that means we make twice as many computers and twice as many cars and, and therefore the price of everything has come down, the quality has gone up and so productivity in other sectors has made life better and more people can afford a car, more people can afford a computer, but just that's not happening in the AEC sector. So it seems to be the underlying issue that everybody's been talked about. And you wrote an article recently about Katera, which was, I think a lot of people had hoped was were going to disrupt that trend in the construction sector and try and deal with this productivity issue. What are you doing and what are you thinking at the moment in relation to new ways of, of doing construction or design even? Yeah, so I think Kintera is a really fascinating story. They just had so much money and so much ambition to really rethink the way the architecture is delivered, and they just didn't succeed. And I think you can look at that, and there will be some people that look at that and they're like, if you had $2 billion and you can't pull this off, like what hope does anyone else in this industry have? I think there will be others that look at what happened at Gatera and be like, they made some really big blunders and that there's other ways of approaching that. And my sort of opinion on that is Gatera, they, they definitely made some mistakes, but there's a whole bunch of people there that are leaving Gatera now that are going out into the industry as this kind of diaspora. And it seems that there'll probably be something that takes off that, may not be Katera, but it'll be like the second or third iteration of that. And I think you're seeing a bunch of different companies, not just from Katera, but from other parts or like other businesses within the industry, right? So you have, I think one way of sort of thinking about it is that there's sort of three buckets that these companies fall within. There's sort of one group of companies which are, uh, say, competing head on with developers and they're like, Rather than going to a developer, you can come to us and we'll build it with modular construction techniques and it will be faster. There's another group of companies which are kind of selling modular construction as just like an off-the-shelf component. So you can go to their website and it's a little bit like Amazon. You like pick the thing that you want and they'll send it out to you. And then there's another kind of group of companies which are often involved in modular construction but not doing the kind of construction themselves. So there's a whole bunch of companies that are doing like modular design and then they outsource that to other companies to construct and build. And I'm not sure which one of those approaches will sort of win out or if if one has to win out or if they can all kind of exist in parallel. But I think when you look at the industry today, even without Katera, there's a lot of money going into it and there's a lot of really smart people trying different things in terms of new ways of creating buildings. Yeah, of course, modular isn't the only answer because like one of the downsides of modular is you're building these large volumes and you're transporting air effectively, <laughs> a lot of air around. So, you know, like there's, I suppose there's other ways of doing modern methods of construction that you know, could be flat pack, could be the platform approach that they're talking about a lot about in the UK. So rather than looking at whole buildings and whole volumes of space, you're looking at the more of the components and how you can streamline the, the production of the components and, and bring them together in a better way in a location. 
Yeah, there's definitely these different kind of approaches and volumetric, like you're saying, it's really hard to get those units into site because they're so big. And so many of these companies are looking at these kind of more flat pack solutions. Um, you're seeing a lot of sort of mass timber, particularly in the States, as we're both addressing sort of environmental concerns, but also allowing uh, some of that modularity into the design. So, yeah, there's, there's some interesting stuff happening there. To relate that story of Kotera back to the previous story we were talking about in productivity and you know, the working environment, like, could you say that one of the, the challenges for Kotera is that they grew so quickly by acquiring other sort of existing companies that had a workforce that was probably less than productive, let's say, given that this Pareto principle or this 80-20 rule applies to everyone. So, you know, if you said they, they grew up to, what was it, about 7,500 employees very quickly by acquiring companies, and if you said if, if only 20% of those 7,500 employees were producing the 80% of the productivity, you know, that they, they had acquired a lot of unproductivity in the process. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure if it would be fair to say that the people they acquired weren't productive, but I would say that um, just for kind of context there, like Katera was making this play to be completely vertically integrated. So they built the factory that made the timber. They had the factory that made concrete. They did a lot of the stuff in-house. And then through all their kind of supply chain, they would actually also construct the building. They were also offering things like cleaning services on top of that. And so on paper, that looks really great. But when you talk to people that were inside Katera, you see that Katera actually was, like I saying, constructed from this kind of conglomeration of different companies that that acquired. And it's not necessarily that each of these companies had unproductive employees, but each of these companies, you know, like they were successful in their own kind of right, in their own business. And they came into Katera with their own way of doing something. So you can imagine if you could acquire a construction company, like they've been successful in their geographic market because of the way that they do construction. And suddenly they're getting acquired into this vertically integrated company that has, that wants them to completely change the way that they think about construction. And so what essentially happened is Katera brought in a lot of, let's say, like legacy process into their own business and failed to get the people that were within those kind of acquired companies to streamline into their own way of doing something. And because of that, you had what on the outside appeared to be vertically integrated company. It was actually fragmented and a whole bunch of little fiefdoms within it and didn't operate at all in that manner. And what about the role of technology? I mean, I suppose for someone like yourself, like you're at the cutting edge of technology. So, I mean, you've studied computational design, you worked for a, a, a cutting edge technology company, and and all the sort of work you've been doing is really the, the, the top end. And uh, so you might probably think that everybody in the industry is leveraging technology that's available. And, and a lot of the technology is not even new. It's you know, it's it's quite mature. But that's not really the case, is it? The majority of the industry are using very little technology. Just about everybody is using a computer nowadays to do things, like read email and type letters. But at the end of the day, they'll print it out or PDF it. So you know, the exchange of information, even though it was originated in technology, 
gets dumbed down. And that's my experience because we work a lot with companies you know, in the more traditional practice. So you know, technology is not a, it's not a big thing. And people still feel we can build buildings without the full use of technology. What, like, what would be your view or what would you say to people listening to this <laughs> about, yeah. about technology and uh, how technology is impacting AEC? Yeah, so I'd say you're right in the sense that um, in general, the industry is pretty slow to adopt new technologies. What I think is interesting about what's happening today compared to what was happening, say, 10 or 20 years ago in the industry is that 10 or 20 years ago, the use of technology really was to enable these um, quite elaborate and unique buildings. Like the sort of cutting edge of technology was like projects like Frank Gehry was working on and projects that Zaha Hadid was working on where geometrically they're really complex and the kind of challenge or the sportsmanship in it was taking this thing that looked impossible to design and construct, putting that into a computer, working out a way to construct it and getting that thing built. I think what's really interesting about where technology is going today, or at least where the sort of frontier of technology is going today, is that you see a lot of these companies that are springing up in the States. We have one called Testbit. And the UK, I think you had like Spacemaker that got acquired by Autodesk. But like they're using computation not to design like fancy stadiums or something, but like they're using computation to design these like pretty ordinary middle of the road, like apartment buildings and stuff like that. And that's a topology of architecture that in the past would have never have had that kind of attention lavished upon it in terms of computational design. And now you're seeing these really like quite sophisticated ways of thinking about computational design being applied on those really like ordinary projects. And I think to me, that's quite an exciting development in the world of computational design that it's no longer about these sort of projects for the 1% maybe, but like, it's about making ordinary architecture better. And I think as much as the industry is maybe slow in adopting technology, I think there are some pockets like that that are really exciting in how they're approaching and using technology. What do you think as an architect? I think a lot of architects might feel threatened by technology and particularly computational design and all these algorithms and they might feel the technology is coming for my job. <laughs> um, yeah. Like even if you take architecture, it's it's fascinating. Somebody told me once that I think it's only it's something like five or ten percent of the built environment actually involves architects. It's like a very small percentage. Yeah. So, and and even from that small percentage, you could say a very small percentage are the the flagship projects that you mentioned, like stadia and, and fancy and complicated buildings. So when it comes to the, the built environment in general, how pervasive is the, the technology and is it threatening to engineers and architects and contractors or is it is it helpful? Yeah, so I think there's some people that would look at that statistic, right, and they'd be like, we only have 5 or 10% of the market. These tools are going to like just start chipping away at that and we're going to end up with a small, small sliver and then eventually all we're going to do is like stadiums and cultural projects. I think the other way to kind of look at that would be to say that the reason that architects only have 5 or 10% of the market is that architectural services are really expensive and that only a particular demographic of customer can afford that. And that if you can use technology to lower the price point in architecture to a place where architecture is able to be maybe applied to some of these more ordinary projects, perhaps you end up, rather than shrinking the pie, you actually end up growing the pie. And so maybe rather than being 5 or 10%, maybe it becomes... 50% of 
the built environment is done by architects, but it's done in a far more efficient um, manner. It's to be seen whether or not that optimism plays out, but um, that's at least where I'd hope that the industry ends up. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably the ongoing thing is you know, architecture is seen as a sort of elitist kind of service to a small minority group of people. And then when you begin to commoditize that, you, you know, you're sort of challenging that, that elitist view. So it will be interesting to see how it plays out. But I, I, I would agree with you. Like it w- would be great to see the learning that architects acquired you know, through their studies being applied to more of the built environment than less of the built environment because I think the world could definitely benefit from better design in, in many ways. So, you know, maybe there's there's new ways that architects can get involved. And in fact, even your own career is an, an interesting example. I mean, you're very involved in research and development and not pure architecture. So that's it's a great example of how you can take your your learning as an architect and apply it in a, a novel and creative way. Yeah, I definitely ended up somewhere different than I thought I was going to end up when I went to architecture school. But yeah, it's been good. Uh, would you encourage architects and listening to think beyond the sort of traditional role of an architect and see how could the the skill of an architect be applied in in much more diverse way across industry? Yeah, you know, probably prior to joining Hassel, I would have said that. And I think in retrospect, it's pretty easy to tell an architect they should change their business model. But in practice, it's actually quite hard for these organizations. So there's definitely opportunities out there for some of these companies. And I'd say probably more than anything, there's opportunities for individuals within those companies. Perhaps it's not a great time to be owning an architecture firm if there's going to be these big kind of changes in the industry. But I think it's a great time for people that are either trained in architectural technology or trained in architecture to that there'll be other kind of avenues open up for them within this um, field that may be less traditional than what they've had before. Yeah. I remember meeting a, a Danish practice probably about 10 years ago now, but they were a medium practice, so about 100, 100 architects. They had set up a research department within the practice of 10 people. So that's 10% of their practice was focused purely on research around, well, different subjects, design, new materials. So 10 people didn't work on any live projects. They only worked on research. But with that in place, they went and got research grants from the EU and ended up developing products and IP and all sorts of things, which which I thought was fascinating that an architectural practice had the sort of foresight to, to do that. So, and it, it wasn't as if the research was an overhead. It was mm. a business model in itself. The, the research department was, I don't know if it did make money, but it, that was the aim. It, it, it brought in its own income and it produced its, its own output. Yeah, another firm over here in the States that has a similar model is Karen Timberlake, and they have a really, but probably a similar size firm, like maybe 100 people, but... Um, they have a lot of researchers, like maybe 10 researchers in there. And research is just like a really core part of how they do their design. So the researchers are often sort of employed in that way. But they also put out a whole bunch of products, you know, like they made their own sensor network. They made their own software for quantifying carbon within buildings. They're doing like really interesting things. And they're doing that as a sort of mid-sized firm in the States and in Philadelphia. Yes. Yeah, I think there's interesting things like that happening. Yeah. Well, even even case where you worked before, I mean that 
was was started by a group of architects, if I remember. You know, and and went into software development and various other activities, not not in pure traditional architectural practice, but very much related to architecture. So I think there's some interesting models that maybe architects could look at as alternatives to the, the traditional. You know, so we're not all fighting for the five same five percent of the pie. <laughs> Even John, John, you want to come in? I don't know about you. I mean, you started your life pursuing architecture and ended up developing software. Yeah, I suppose architecture wasn't what I expected it to be. And I suppose it was down to the methods and techniques that we were being taught in university. And yeah, I thought it was very subjective and very open-ended I thought that, I don't know whether I'll get myself into trouble, but I just thought architects in general were bullshit artists. Um, and, um, yeah, and then I was very fortunate to have a presentation by Christian Jerricks from ADAS. He showed how he was generating designs based on a codified brief from clients and when I seen when I seen his algorithm in, in operation uh, generating all the different permutations of a building that met the client's brief, I was like, that is that is architecture um, for me. Um, and that's where I got into, you know, I, I started teaching myself to uh, code and well script really through Grasshopper using generative design methods and. Yeah, found myself in the BIM space and got various different opportunities around building software for the cloud. And really, I was pushed into the cloud by because of the limitations with desktop design and desktop generative design. It just wasn't able to generate the, I suppose, the like I wanted to be able to almost design the door handles into the brief. Like, so, it, you know, I wanted to press a button and it would push the entire design, taking into account all of the different um, uh, requirements by the client, much like Katera tried to achieve. And I thought it was, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. And, and I mean, that's why I got in touch with you, Daniel, was because of Katera. I just think that the whole the whole thing is fascinating and particularly how they failed. And, I, and, and I'm supposed to come full circle back to the discussion around architecture at this moment that it, it feels to me like architecture has moved on and, and you're right like you've identified that test fit is automating commodity architecture but that commodity architecture has also you know got forces of inertia in its evolution such as material shortage um, etc you know, the price of labor. And it's, it feels to me like we need to evolve beyond what the traditional idea of architecture is today and more towards what Katera was trying to deliver. Because at the end of the day, Katera did see that, look, this overcomes the efficiency. This actually delivers to customers what they actually want. Like, you know, I have friends who are building a house right now. 
if you could just say, okay, the price is this, here's your design, it'll be delivered in three months. That ticks their box. They do not want to go through the engagement with an architect, the engagement with the construction process. I think that architecture as a profession, you almost need it because of today's landscape, it almost pushes architects and the profession to evolve, to remain relevant and to be able to provide that product that customers want. And what I'm interested, I suppose, from, from you, Daniel, is what, what do you think has changed in the architectural profession? Have, do you think that architects across the globe are looking at, um, I suppose, the Katera model and are they almost tooling up their profession and preparing for business model change to align with this, this new failed business model? But as, as you've identified early in the, in the conversation, Katera 2, Katera 3 will get it right. Like, do they see that th- this is an opportunity? And rather than sitting back and looking at Katera and saying, hey, that thing can't be done, do you think that they'll actually evolve their methodologies, their techniques to evolve towards providing the product that the client actually wants? Yeah, it's a good question. I My intuition is that there's probably a lot of architects sleeping a lot easier right now and breathing a sigh of relief and just happy that they don't have to think about Katera right now. And I think... One of the more interesting conversations that I had after I wrote the Katera article, someone came to me and they asked, like, sure, Katera failed because they didn't vertically integrate and they messed up all these other things. But if Katera had the right leadership in place, would the business model of Katera actually have succeeded? And I think it's actually, I hadn't like quite considered it, but I think it's a fair question, which is that we all kind of understand where we want to get to, which is like you're saying, like, having certainty over cost, having a better quality product, having things delivered on time. But Katera, the way that they're kind of thinking about it, where they were completely vertically integrated in that way, it was also like sort of strangely fragile in that if there was an increase in demand for their product, the only way that they could kind of expand and grow was to build more factories and to acquire more companies. And so the product didn't necessarily scale as quick as it needed to, or it wasn't able to, it wasn't as like, say, agile as it might appear. And I think what's interesting is that there are these other approaches that other companies are taking. So an example is in the US, there's a company over here called Generate Technologies, and they make like, say like four to six story, like modular apartment buildings in Boston. And the founder of that company is this guy called John Klein, and he came from Zaha Hadid Architects. So, like, really, like, sophisticated in his thinking about computational design. And he's applying all of that knowledge that he got at, like, Zaha Hadid um, into this architecture firm that, I mean, they're not trying to scale as big as Katera, but they're doing, like, really nice, sustainable, passive house quality a development in Boston that's all made out of mass timber, and it all uses these algorithms to place them on site and make everything efficient. And so I think there are these sort of things that are going to spring up, right? Like there's going to be more kind of generate technologies that spring up, and I'm not sure like where architecture firms fit in that. It may be like you're sort of saying that there might perhaps be sort of platforms that are developed that architects can sort of tap into and develop on top of or utilize in their own practice. 
definitely the way that Katera was thinking about it, they were trying to bring more designers into the process so that they weren't the only ones doing the design work. I don't think it's necessarily, I guess like the kind of conclusion to that is it's not necessarily one or the other. It's not necessarily like module construction and all architecture firms die and it's not necessarily architecture firms live and modular construction never works out. I think there's a world where where both of those two things can coexist and help one another. I mean, part of the problem is the divide between design and construction. Like a lot of modular doesn't work because the design proceeds without modular in mind and then halfway through someone decides, well, we should speak to a modular contractor. But at that stage, the design has progressed to, to a point where it's, it's, it's quite difficult. Either the, the design has to change or the system that has to try and be tweaked to accommodate the design. And so you, and you almost redo the design, if you like. So you know, the, I think that's part of the problem is that the, the, there's been this big divide between design and construction. So architects cool. don't actually build anything. You know, they just design stuff. Yeah, yeah. I spoke to um, someone at this company, Gilux Modular, and they said a similar sort of thing, that there are these, you have these existing modular construction companies that essentially compete with general contractors and constructing things. And exactly like you're saying, like, they'll be getting these designs from designers, and because they weren't designed for a modular system, they have to spend all this time reworking the design into their modular system. And generally speaking, for these companies, the cost of reworking a design sort of, and the cost of transporting things from factories into the site, it sort of washes out, and the benefits that you get with modular don't quite outweigh the cost of it, which is why I think there's been a lot of modular companies started even back in the 60s and stuff like that. And some of them have persisted, but none of them have really taken off. And I think going forward, there's sort of some way of getting more in links between those two things is going to be really critical. I guess the downfall of a lot of modular to date has been the fact, A, they don't have designers. So where modular companies are providing products they tend to be badly designed terrible looking modules that you know, just no thought goes into it and from a designer's point of view because those companies don't employ top-end designers they might have a person that's doing the design work but it's, you wouldn't call them a top-end designer because of the output of their product or as you said the other the other scenario is where top designers are producing design that can't be built in modular because it wasn't taken into account there was no interaction between the, the modular company and the designer at, at the, the point of design. And a lot of the market, I think, thinks that the way you get the best price is to separate construction and design. So do the design and then take the design to the market and see who gives you the best price. And if you engage with a, a contractor during the design process, I think a lot of people think, well, then you'll limit your that competitive edge of, of trying to get a competitive quote. It's a tricky problem, isn't it? Yeah, it's probably also worth pointing out that even on projects that we think of being quite traditional, there's often like prefabricated elements to them, um, whether it's the HVAC system or often the way that really complex facades are made, pretty similar to how we talk about mass manufactured modular construction, you know, like the built-in factories that are all cut by machines and shipped into site and units. So there are sort of little bits and pieces of this that are floating into the industry, even if it's not wholesale replacement of different components. The idea that they're talking about in the UK, which is platform, sort of based on the idea of the way cars or something are manufactured, where you have a, 
a sort of standardized chassis engine block. And then around that, you, you have alternative design options, a hatchback or sedan or you know, a SUV. But it's the underlying platform of, of the vehicle is pretty much the same. And I think, John, to your point, I think some people like the idea of having a personalized house, for instance, if you're talking about homes. You know, it's not just about cost and quality. You know, I think some people like the idea that like certain things personalized. And but if you had this platform approach, then they could have they could personalize where it's possible to personalize, and but have the the underlying structure pretty much the same. But nobody, yeah, no, I don't think anybody's offering that really. Yeah, and so that's like a group of companies in the UK that are trying to get that started? Well, it's, it's actually some research done through the, the, the Centre of Digital Build Britain. They've set up this construction innovation hub. There's a group of companies that are looking at modern methods of construction, but one of the ideas is this this platform approach that you, you standardise buildings at the component level rather than at the whole building level. Obviously, I'm interested in BIM, and that's, that's always been something interesting to me is that when you think about buildings – Everybody says, well, buildings are one-off, so you can't – it's not like manufacturing. You can't industrialize the building industry because buildings are one-off products. But they, when you think about the components of buildings, well, they're not – there's nothing one-off about the components because for a material or a component of a building to become a, something that you can le- legitimately use, it goes through a lengthy development and testing process. So – the components of buildings are very standardized. So once you start thinking about buildings at the component level, then it's very standardized. And then that's where BIM, because BIM is focused on objects and components rather than the whole thing. And it's really just the assembly of components. And this is where computational design becomes very interesting because you can say, well, here's a standard set of components. Yeah, here's some rules. You know, and let's get a computer to assemble these components based on a set of criteria and rules. And now we're unlimited by because the computer can do that quickly and unendedly. You could tell a computer to spend 50 hours with no tea breaks and no holidays and no you know meetings and just keep going. <laughs> Produce six options. Is that where computational design is going in your mind, or is is it something else? Yeah, so I think it's definitely one component of it is this creation of different design options in relation to like site conditions. And definitely, I think like we're talking about like test fit and stuff like that. Like I think these are really interesting sort of first forays into what that might look like in the future. I think there's also other sort of interesting things happening at the moment in terms of computational design. Like from my perspective as a researcher, probably the more interesting things are related to like getting feedback from buildings and getting data back from how buildings are operated. Because traditionally architects haven't had actually much insight into what happens to the building after it's constructed, right? And so if you have that data coming back and you're able to combine that with like BIM data or construction data, being able to look at those two things is potentially really powerful. And maybe taking that back to sort of modular construction, like I think one of the things that makes architecture really difficult is that if you're doing everything bespoke every time, even if you get feedback from a project, it's hard to say whether the lessons that you learn from that project translate to the next iteration because the next thing is going to be so different to the last thing that you did. But if you're doing the same thing over and over and over again or doing something that's similar over and over and over again, I think there's much more capacity to take that feedback from clients and to take that feedback from inhabitants, feed that back into the design process and make the design slightly better each time. 
So from my perspective, that's, that's probably some of the more interesting stuff happening in computational design right now. Would you say, like some people would say, the problem with computational design is it gives you too many options. You know, like it's just unending and, you know, somebody still has to decide at the end of the day which option and, you know, like the traditional design process was, was slow and, but you ended up with one or maybe one or two options. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the computational design will generate, you know, 50 to 100 options in a few minutes, <laughs> but then wh- which one do you pursue? Like you can't pursue all 50. Yeah. So I think like the, is, is that a, down, a downside of the technology? Yeah, like the approach of see, Autodesk is going down this approach with generative design, where they're like, we're just going to spew out like a thousand different options, and it's on you to kind of pick the right option for the design. From my perspective, it just it doesn't make sense to do that. Like you're saying, it's really hard for people to evaluate all these different options when they see them. If you see an option that you like and you want to tweak a little bit because it's been sort of generated in this funny way, it's kind of have to go back to the start and generate everything again. It's hard also, I think, to feed into that process design criteria because the only thing that you can feed into the algorithm is something that the algorithm can measure. And so there's more sort of nebulous concepts that designers understand but can't quite quantify, don't get put into those algorithms and don't become the criteria that are used to drive the design. But that said, like the generative design process is only one small subset of computational design as a whole. And so... Things like parametric modeling have been around for a while now and are really successful techniques. And I think they'll continue to be really important ways to generate buildings. One of our other interests at the AC Hive is developing community because one of the you know, things we identified, John and I were talking, is that there's a lot of interesting things happening around the world in pockets. You know. But it's almost like nobody gets to hear about it. <laughs> and so what we're trying to do is you know, sort of create a community of people from around the world who have similar interests. And the, I mean, and the broad interest is how do we make AEC better? What's, you know, and that's the theme of innovation. How do we make improvements? But from your side, like, what are the communities that you participate in? Like, where, where do you hang out with people that are pushing the boundaries of AEC? Yeah, I guess like my communities, like I find Twitter really useful and and I've started following on Twitter recently some people that are in like the real estate world. And it's just like fascinating to see them like talk about deals and talk about like floor plans and stuff like that. And yeah, I really appreciate that part of Twitter that you're able to kind of jump in and see these conversations happening that maybe are sort of locked off to you normally. And then I also do you, follow. Do you participate in hackathons and you know, smart geometry conferences and things uh, like that. Yeah, I went to smart. I really like smart geometry. Hopefully, it comes back on soon. But um, yeah, I've participated in a bunch of the smart geometry conferences, and yeah, I really love the format of like actually not just like listening to presentations, but actually working alongside someone and doing something for a couple of days. I think yeah, it's a really good way to learn and to meet other people. Yeah, that one that one was really good. And then the others, I'm in the sort of research world, so I also, there's different sort of research communities that I participate in, but they often have like a very different outlook. Like a lot of the research at the moment is driven by like user experience design for like Spotify or something, you know? And so like just the way they think about research and gathering information and data is really different to how architecture firms do it. But I find it really useful to see what's kind of happening in those communities because it provides clues of what might work in the architecture world too. What, what format of 
research do you, do you feel delivers results? Because this is one of the things John and I were talking about. It, like the the hackathon idea is, it's nice because people get together for a weekend and they tease out some idea, but it it just it doesn't always very seldom translates into something that continues to progress and be developed. Maybe it does in another form. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but like. From your, from a research point of view, what have you found? What are the formats where you think, you know, this really works in terms of getting innovation going and, and progressing it as well? Yeah. So the way that I talk about this is that I think there's research for different purposes, right? So the way that you're talking about research at the moment is you're talking about like research as a way of generating like breakthrough ideas that are new in the industry. And so there's, like hackathons or other sort of ways of doing that. There's obviously like at a company like Google, they have Google X, which is a big research group that kind of is in charge of making these really big breakthrough um, products. But there's also research that's focused more on, say, like incremental improvements on things. And so that type of research, maybe it isn't published or doesn't result in like a big breakthrough that you can kind of talk about. But it is like this small kind of improvement. So we're doing a lot of that when we were at WeWork. We were studying a lot of how people were using spaces and making small incremental changes to the design of the spaces, but it wasn't necessarily a huge breakthrough. Another way of thinking about it is that research is a tool to like either for marketing or for communications, and research is something to be sort of published and shared. And so the type of research that does well in that sort of situation isn't necessarily the same as other types of research. So I guess that's a long way of sort of saying that it really depends on what your objective is in doing research. And mm-hmm. that sort of drives, I think, how you approach it. I think a lot of the complication in an architecture firm, at least from what I've experienced, is that when we say research, I think everyone is in agreement that research is a good thing. But when you say research to someone um, particularly leaders in a company, they all have a different conception of what they're getting when they do research. So some people think of it as like philanthropy and that they're just doing it for the good of the world. Some people think that it's going to be good for marketing. Some people think that they're going to get this breakthrough new service. And because there's all these different misaligned sort of goals and what they want to get out of the research, I think that's often where a lot of the frustration comes from organizations that undertake research and that they're, they're trying to hit this sort of they all think they're going for something, but they all think they're going for something different and they never quite get what they want out of it. Um, so mm-hmm. I think as long as an organization is aligned on what they want from the research, sort of the best, me- the best method for getting there, there's a variety of ways of kind of getting there, but it's all possible. Like for most companies, they probably see research as an overhead. So in other words, there's going to be no, no immediate return anyway. There might be some potential future return it's not, it's not measurable, so therefore it's, it's a pure cost with, with some undetermined um, return in the future. But w- would you say some of the companies, like you've worked for Case and WeWork, and like, do some of those have a different attitude to, to research where it's, it's definitely part of the business model? Yeah, at WeWork, I would say it was a lot easier to do research. And the reason for that is people, clients were coming to WeWork and they were staying there on these month-to-month contracts, right? And so if you could show that the research that you did either retained people for longer at WeWork or made WeWork more efficient and um, attracting people, and you multiplied that across 100 buildings, 
even if it was a very small kind of change, it could be like millions of dollars that you save the company. And so at WeWork, it's pretty easy to justify doing research because there was all this like potential or financial potential to have impact on the company. And even at Hassel, I, I mean, it's taken a while for me to kind of get there, but I think I'm starting to see that some of the stuff that I'm doing is having impact on the company. And I, even in that scenario where we're selling services, there's ways of sort of quantifying what you're doing to measure whether or not it's worthwhile, basically. And I'd still be seen as like an overhead cost. Hopefully I'm a, a welcome overhead cost. <laughs> Yeah, it would be nice if like every project had a, a research budget, wouldn't it? So, so say, well, yeah, there's 10% of the budget dedicated to, to research. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that would be the dream. <laughs> uh, I, was, I think on one of our previous calls, I was mentioning in, in Ireland, some of the public projects had a, a budget for art. So basically, for any mm. public project, there was a 10% budget. For art, because art always was, it was always the first thing to get cut from the budget. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in value engineering, so in public spaces, the sculptures or features or, yeah, so the, so there was a, a ring fence budget for art in public projects and, you know, it's almost as if we need to do something like that. You say, look, you're not touching that research budget. It's, you know, we, we're definitely going to spend that. <laughs> Yeah, you can, yeah, t- yeah. you can touch something else, but anyway, um, we we're getting to the hour. John, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, I had one final question. In the prep for this call, I thought that we'd be talking more about Katera. So, I watched this video of a guy who had he actually worked for Katera. Um, about, uh, he said 12 months ago, he was a uh, woodworker. He was brought in to fit doors and. Um, um, skirt, skirting boards. He wrote a letter. He, he was pretty much in the video. He was saying, I told, I told the CEO this would happen when I wrote him a letter after I got fired for telling the foreman he was an idiot. I wanted to push that question back on you, Daniel. I know you noted that leadership in Katera made, you know, we're inexperienced. I want to know what uh, you would say if it was 12 months ago, what you would be telling the Katera leadership? Yeah, I think there was a lot of people that 12 months ago were predicting Katera's demise, right? Like, um, so I don't think it's come as a particular shock to a lot of people. It, I mean, to a lot of people, it just seemed too big, too fast, um, too much. But I guess that's People said that to Elon Musk as well, you know, like, so some of these people that do crazy things like this pull it off and some of the people don't. And I think it's also fine for things to fail, you know, like if we expect everything to succeed, then we're never going to try something that's really difficult. And I think it's as much as it's easy to kind of make fun of Katera, I think it's good that they gave it a shot and actually tried something different in this industry. And the people that joined that company that, were there and they were there because they were like kind of fed up with what was happening and their other previous jobs and they joined this like crazy startup to really try and rethink the way that construction was being done like I mean you have to give them credit for that and sure things I think didn't go as well as anyone hoped but like I say like all these people have experienced this really interesting company that kind of thought differently about the industry and I'm really hopeful that many of them will leave that experience and um, go on to do something even greater next time. 
from yourself, Daniel, is there anything sort of last words you want to tell the community about that you're particularly interested in or doing at the moment or where they can get hold of you if they want to catch up with you? Yeah, you can um, find Hassel at um, hasselstudio.com and we have a lot of our research up there and there's like an insights kind of tab so you can see some of the research that I've worked on recently and you can also find me at danieldavis.com if you want to see some of my other writing. Well, I greatly appreciate your time and you know, it's been a really interesting conversation. I think we could probably carry on talking for another hour but yeah. don't want to keep keep you so long and um We'll definitely talk again, hopefully. Let you know, if you haven't looked at the AC Hive platform, it's, it's a place where you could share some of the work you're doing or even engage the community in some discussion, if you like. So feel free to do that. Uh, any final words, John? No, just thanks, Daniel. Thanks for your time and uh, have a great day. Cool. Thank you, John. Well, it's yeah, been a really great conversation. Thanks, Daniel, and I hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you again. Cool. See you.